Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today, we're going to be talking about adoption scams, how to recognize and how to prevent with Eric Freeby and Deborah Phillips. Eric Freeby is an adoption attorney with Brown Pruitt. He is a member of the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys, and he serves on the board of Creating a Family. And we have Deborah Phillips. She is the CEO of Children's Connection, Inc., which is a child welfare organization in Texas, providing families in crisis and child care providers support ranging from a whole host of things, children and, and pregnant women, Medicare case management, nutrition programs, pregnancy support services, uh, parental education and adoption. And she also serves on the board of Creating a Family. So welcome, Deborah and Eric. And thank you so much for being with us today to talk about a topic that I think is actually one that we don't spend enough time talking about, and that is adoption scams. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay. Adoption scams, I think, can fall into three very general categories. So, and we're going we're gonna to approach them that way. One is that those against adoptive parents by expectant parents or supposedly uh, pregnant women, those against expectant couples are, are birth parents, and then those done by adoption agencies or attorneys or people acting like they are an adoption agency or attorney. So we're going to uh, approach them in that order, all right? Uh, so we're going to start with the adoption scams that are, that are perpetrated uh, against adoptive parents, primarily by uh, expectant or supposedly expectant uh, women or couples. So, Deborah, what are some typical adoption scams that that uh, are just? You start with one, and then I'll go. I'll ask Eric to, to name another one. So, what is it? A typical adoption scam that you sometimes see? Well, I think the one everybody initially thinks of is a pregnant mom who just purposely deceives adoptive parents, saying that she wants to place for adoption in effort to collect money. Often doing that with multiple families at the same time, and then fails to place. But I do think it's really important for us to note that it's totally legal and legitimate that birth mothers who do intend to place may change their mind at some point during their pregnancy or shortly after birth and still during that legal risk period. And that's not an adoption scam. We need to be able to allow uh, pregnant moms to really consider their decision carefully and know that they're making the right choice for them and realize that a match isn't really an adoption until placements occur. But the- I am so glad you said that because you were so right. Um, Eric, just roughly what percentage of women who are pregnant, who are who go into it thinking that they will be placing, end up deciding to, to parent and then you know, not place, not, not go through with the adoption? Usually by the time the cases make it to me, which is typically after they're matched, I would say at the point they're matched, roughly three quarters or about 75% will end up going through with placement. Mm-hmm. And Deborah, do you see that that mm-hmm. that percentage or is yours a little different? No, I agree that uh, once they're matched and have selected a family, and of course for us that means, you know, typically meeting the family, talking on the phone, starting a relationship, that about 75% of those will go ahead and go through with placement. Okay, so to be clear that what, what you're saying is that just because a uh, a mom decides to parent, even though she went through up to the point of making that decision, she was you know on board with the adoption, 
um, that is not a fraud. So, Eric, explain what you, what, uh, you mean by it, what, what Deborah was talking about then. Is this somebody coming into the adoption with no, coming into an adoption agency or attorney, matching with a family, but with no intent ever of placing? But where would the money come in? Okay, so what, what, is, what is she getting out of it? So in, in most states, and almost every state I'm aware of, is on some level you can pay living expenses to a birth mother. Um, in Texas, it has to go through, through a licensed child placing agency. In some states, attorneys can pay it um, or social workers. It, the, the laws vary from state to state, but there is, and people know this, that you can get a certain amount of expenses for rent clothing, cell phone, utilities. And that's the driving, to me, that's the primary factor that someone would go into an adoption scam would be for the, that financial incentive. And to make it difficult is in Texas, you can't go back and ask a birth mother if she changes her mind for reimbursement of those expenses. So if you've spent $5,000 on all of you know, our her necessities over the past few months, you can't ask her for that money back. And it may, that makes it hard to prove fraud uh, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, because they can mm-hmm. say they changed their mind and without something more, it is, it is difficult. I think in most cases where we can um, see that there's a fraud case that warrants being turned over to law enforcement and possible prosecution is when multiple families, adopted families, are involved with one pregnant mom. And when she starts matching and having relationships with multiple people at the same time, then that deceitful intent is a little more obvious. And those are the ones that truly are a scam from the from the beginning because she never intended to be able to place with all six families she might be working with. And they can also, moms can also do this with adoption agencies and maybe work with two or three or four or five adoption agencies at the same time, matching with families through each of those. So it's important um, for agencies to really screen for that as well, which most, most reputable agencies will do. I work with a number of agencies in Texas, and I may have even made this call to Deborah before, but I'll see a name and I'm like, wait a second, I think another agency is working with that birth mother too. And that's some of the ways that we can try and figure out if they're working with, if a birth mother is working with more than one agency. I was just thinking, how would you, how would, so from an adoptive parent standpoint, what are some things that they can do that would uh, help them, if not prevent uh, this type of fraud, at least limit the amount of money? Because if they're if they're matched with an expectant mom who needs living expenses, and, and as Eric pointed out, each state has different laws as to what is allowed. So keep that in mind. You need to check with an attorney or agency in your state um, to know what is allowed, but because each state is quite different. But because they, because in most states something is allowed, what's an adoptive parent to do, Deborah, to to limit the amount of money? Um, that they that they're out in case it in case she either changes her mind fraudulently or unfraudulently. Most agencies will let them set a maximum amount. I know at our agency, families set their own budget for what they want their expenses to be. Some agencies set that amount for the family, but usually there is a cap on it. If there's not, then that 
might be a red flag on, is this a good agency for you if they're just going to spend an unlimited amount of money on a mom without really knowing? I think um, adoptive parents, the best thing they can do is choose a reliable and reputable um, adoption professional and or attorney, depending on their state's laws, to represent them in an adoption. And that's the best way to prevent a scam because that's really part of what you're paying for is that adoption agency staff's skills and experience in being able to kind of see if there are red flags that we should be checking out. But in particular, it's um, for most of us that are working with moms that do come in and may be considering listing with different agencies, a lot of times they give themselves away by using almost code words that agency professionals would say. Um, for example, if we have a mom call us and she says, well, I need to know what kind of things can you help me with? And she starts asking for um, support, financial support in different ways. And one of the things she says is, well, can you assist me with hygiene? Well, hygiene is an item in the Texas standards that is an allowable item. And oftentimes we'll see that from agency to agency on the budgets, hygiene items or what have you. But that's typically not how a pregnant mom would talk when she's calling and wanting help. So that kind of gives you a a hint that either she's placed for adoption before and has been through this experience or at least you know partially um, gotten through the through the process or that perhaps she's been talking to a lot of other agencies if she starts using words that social workers would use <laughs> instead of regular pregnant people her age um, then that might be a, a cause to kind of wonder and oftentimes we will ask questions and as a prof adoption professional who's not emotionally involved with the pregnant person we can ask a little tougher question and a little you know a more direct question than an adoptive parent might feel comfortable asking. Uh, but we also call around and talk to each other too. It's often uh, that adoption agency directors will have um, situations where we kind of wonder and we'll call some of the other larger agencies and see if they happen to be working with that mom as well. I was going to say what Deborah is working with a well-established agency attorney, someone that's been doing it for a while, because we just see the same red flags over and over. Uh, like an expectant mother needs her rent paid. You would pay directly to the landlord. Well, if they want the money to go directly to them, that's, you know, that's one of our red flags. Or if they're asking for, you know, just instead of giving them money to go to Walmart on a Walmart card, they just want, you know, a few hundred dollars in cash or to try and get all of it up front so that they may be able to just you know, get it and leave. It's all of those sorts of little things that we see over time that when they start adding up it, you know, an adoption professional, it'll, it'll sound the alarm bells that they may need to start calling around. And I should mention that creating a family has an e-guide and multimedia e-guide uh, on how to choose an adoption agency or an adoption attorney, and it is truly turnkey. We provide you questions to ask and, and uh, all sorts of information to help you choose that. Um, all right, so the one adoption scam would be a uh, expectant woman going into it without the intent to place in order to get money to get expenses, her expenses covered for a period of time. What about, uh, we, we sometimes hear 
of women who are not even pregnant, but are, but, and this is seldom with an agency, they're seldom with an agency, but very commonly uh, it happens online where they contact somebody, uh, an ex- uh, adoptive, uh, prospective adoptive parents online, um, and strike up a conversation and, uh, and, and promise to place without even being pregnant. Uh, how common is that, Eric? I wouldn't say it's very common, but the problem exists. When they say that you can buy anything on the internet, that's very true. Uh, you can buy positive <laughs> pregnancy tests on the internet, which is typically, um, it's a, I guess, someone that's prepared to defraud somebody, it, it's, that's what they'll do, is they'll get online and buy a positive pregnancy test. You can get um, medical records from an OBGYN, things like that. So they can go get the documentation to try and lead somebody on. And it can be, it can be convincing. That's why in my end of, what I call independent adoption cases where there's not necessarily a, um, there's not an agency involved that's going to go to a face-to-face meeting with um, expectant mother is to, it's really important early on to get someone out there to just sit down face-to-face and talk with her. It may be too early to physically tell if she's pregnant, but just having that face-to-face contact will flush out a lot of the fraud that exists. Okay, and you know, I when I have, and I've I've certainly seen a, a number of these online, or people who have been taken in by these online, and it seems to me that the the motivation is it's almost more of an emotional fraud because generally I don't see money exchanging hands, um, I don't, but I see a lot of conversation, a lot of emotional involvement, and I. I've often wondered if the um, if the women who are doing this are just seeking attention or seeking connection. I, I'm fortunate they could also be seeking money, so that's you know, not saying it. But anyway, I've certainly noticed that. Um, so, Deborah, what what are some things that people can do if they're approached by somebody online uh, saying that? Because uh, a lot of adoptive parents go online and say, "Hey, you know, if you know of anybody who is pregnant uh, and is thinking about making an adoption plan, please send them my way because we're interested." They'll have their website up uh, with you know, with their information. This is a very common technique for adoptive parents. So, if they're approached by somebody, what should they do, Deborah? Well, just remember when you're notifying all your friends of all your plans to adopt, you're also notifying the scammers, too, because they're out there on the Internet looking as well. So um, there's certainly always that possibility, particularly if you're doing your own networking and trying to do an independent adoption without having the, the use of an adoption professional. And I think you're right that some of the cases really are about getting money. Um, I think it's kind of 50-50 that others are really not only seeking attention, but it also might be women with mental health mm-hmm. issues as well and mental illness. And so it's not only do they crave attention, but they may be very lonely. And it's really unfortunate that the people that they're victimizing are people who've probably had a lot of years of struggling with infertility and kind of have their mm-hmm. own tragic story as well. So it's it's not a good combination for anybody. Um, I definitely think you want someone to sign a, a HIPAA release 
early on in the process so you can get information directly from their um, doctor, their OB, and know that, get a confirmed pregnancy test and verify it. We always call the doctor, um, confirm online that that doctor exists first, and then call the doctor's office with that release and verify that they did do a pregnancy test for that particular mom at that particular date and it was uh, positive or negative, what have you. Um, some doctor's offices don't keep records of that, of what pregnancy tests they do. I'm always surprised by that. But um, oftentimes, unless they see the patient again, they don't open up a, a case file for, for them. And so in those cases, you know, going with them or having someone go with them to an OB or sending them back to that same one again to do a test where you get the verified results since you have that release form. Again, some of that is a little awkward for an adoptive parent to do yeah. personally. You may want to hire a social worker, an adoption professional just on a on an hourly basis to help you with some of that initial screening stuff, even if you're not going to be in their program. Some agencies are open to that. Of course, not all, but that might be worth, you know, paying a little bit of help, you know, on the verification process. And some doctors will question individuals wanting other individuals health records more than an agency. Um, mm -hmm. We generally don't have doctors have any problem with it as long as we have a valid release form signed, but I have heard that um, individuals having difficulty getting that information from doctor's offices, which is probably pretty understandable. Yeah. But Eric, if, if, if somebody is trying to do an independent adoption, they're going to, meaning that they're trying to, uh, the prospective adoptive parents are trying to find expectant moms who will may be considering adoption on their own. But even then, they will eventually have to have an adoption attorney, will they not? So couldn't that be a a, um, um, a protective factor to go ahead and get your adoption attorney hired and that person can start doing some of the um, the, the, the hard questioning and, and verifying? And that's what I usually tell adoptive parents is it's better to get an adoption attorney early on and go ahead and go through these steps, get you know, your background information from birth parents and things like that. And then, you know, if we need to sit a few months, uh, you know, between initially starting and birth, that's perfectly fine. But if we come in you know, right before birth is supposed to happen, it really condenses everything that we have to do. And it makes it a lot harder for us to get a good feel as to what's going on, as opposed to having been in the case for a few months. Mm -hmm. So for sure, it definitely makes sense to get an adoption professional on board, an attorney on board, because even in cases I've had where you know, I'm, some of those red flags have gone up, I you know, will get a social worker, contract with an agency, something like that, to, or get birth mother her own attorney uh, to go out and, and meet with her. Yeah, and there there are two red flags that I often see, and I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see if you guys have seen this as well. Anytime I hear of, and uh, usually I hear from the uh, prospective adoptive parents who are coming, saying, "Oh, I've got the best news. There's a mom who's having twins." And as soon as I hear the word twins, I go, "Hmm, gosh." Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, exactly. see that as well that twins seem to be. You know, often if you're going to scam, you might as well scam big. I don't know. what is that something that you see as well? Twins seem to be the... Yes. Oh, I've, go ahead, Deborah. 
Uh, oh, I definitely think that's a code word for this is probably a scam. Um, it, twins happen in adoption, but very, very rarely. Mm -hmm. The reason we have so many twins is because of all of our, um, you know, fertility treatments and things we have now. And moms that are not wanting to have a pregnancy certainly aren't going through those. So twins are pretty rare in adoption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that way just in general. I was just going to say twins are like the unicorn of the adoption world. I, I, <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. It happens, but maybe a couple times a year that I'll see it. So it, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the other thing, and, and go ahead, Deborah. Eric's talking from the basis of across multiple agencies he works with. Yes. And in my agency, you know, we might have twins every three years or four years five years you know it's yeah. just so out of a few hundred adoptions mm -hmm. we may see a couple sets of twins yeah. yeah it's it's pretty rare and another uh red flag that that i see is a uh expectant mom who does not follow through when the prospective adoptive parents tell her that that she needs to contact or respond to phone calls or texts from her attorney or agency so that's another that's another red flag. Eric, do you see that one as well? Yeah, we do, and that's a not going to doctor's appointments for sure. Uh, it's that's always either that's always a good sign of one that you know they they may be scamming, but two that they also may be really struggling with their decision. So I would say those things are are definitely signs that there's there's trouble there there's potential trouble on the horizon. Regardless if it's a scam, yeah, good point, because it may not be. Mm -hmm. um, another, uh, and again, I don't know if this is the word scam is the correct one, but uh, um, moms who say that the birth father is unidentified, and yet they do know who they uh, who he is, but not identifying him because either one, for a number of reasons, I actually don't know all the reasons. Uh, Deborah, thoughts on that, and, and what are some of the reasons that a oh gosh, mom there are wouldn't many reasons. Yeah, okay, yeah, there are many reasons. But and sometimes it's a legitimate reason. If he's acted out violently against her, um, she, maybe she's been in a domestic violence shelter. Maybe there's um, police reports that document the violence that's occurred. She may truly be afraid of him, and it may be a really dangerous time during that point of the relationship when she separated from him. That going back and saying, "Oh, by the way, I'm." pregnant and I'm placing your baby for adoption might be a really dangerous thing to say to him face to face for sure. And so that that's probably the most common reason we see, but it could be just, she's embarrassed. She didn't want to tell him. Uh, we've had moms say they don't want to mess up his life because he's in college or what have you. And so they don't want to inconvenience him. You know, there's all kinds of crazy reasons. Most of the time, um, when a mom says, oh, he'll never sign, he'll never sign, we say, well, let us talk to him. And they, they are more than willing to participate in the adoption plan, usually not actively. Usually they're signing papers and, and that kind of thing, but not really um, following up with relationships with adoptive parents. But dads are a lot more willing than moms give them credit for being. And sometimes I think it's, too, that mom doesn't want to know how readily he would dismiss her and dismiss the baby. Oh, um, mm -hmm. And so that that can create some, you know, real negative feelings as well. Um, and 
and hurt her. And so I think for all those reasons, that's why they may say that. Um, if it's truly a life-threatening issue, then certainly you don't want to push that envelope. But on the other hand, we really need to try to explore exactly who is the dad, where was the um, was the baby conceived, you know, what state, and things like that, and get some background information that, again, you know, somebody who's not as emotionally involved in it can ask a little more pointed and direct questions. Okay. Sometimes adoptive parents don't really want to know. They would rather have an unidentified father because they, in their mind, it makes things easier for them or it, it makes it less likely that somebody else will object to the adoption. So Eric, why is it important talking to adoptive parents or prospective adoptive parents? Why is it important that they should want the birth father to be identified? It's really twofold. One is so that they can get his background information, his health, social, genetic, educational history to know. And I, if he's allergic to strawberries, you may want to know that because the baby may be allergic. Just little things like that all the way to, you know, larger diseases and things like that. So that's one reason it's really important to, if you can't get that background information from a birth father. Um, the other reason is typically in most states, if a birth father um, typically, especially if it's not what we call a legal father. In the case of a newborn, that's typically someone that's not married to the birth mother. So if they're not a legal father, usually they can sign pre-birth and what they sign is irrevocable, meaning they can't take it back or undo it. So you've kind of already checked off that birth father box and it's not something that you're necessarily going to have to stress, stress about after baby gets here. Another way to... Um, he doesn't sign, uh, if this alleged father doesn't sign, then there's a, two different ways to kind of terminate rights. Um, in some states, you have to go out there and try and find him and serve him. And that's going to drag on the termination of parental rights or adoption proceedings after birth. Uh, in some states, uh, if they don't, if birth fathers don't register with the paternity registry, then they're not entitled to notice of the termination proceedings. The problem with that is most states' registries can't be searched until about a month after birth. So you're kind of hanging out there in legal limbo for a month after birth. So it's by not getting them to sign ahead of time, I wouldn't say that you're putting the adoption in jeopardy, but you're definitely putting yourself in some legal limbo stress for a month or so or you know whatever the state's time frame is after birth. You know, and I would also say having not having fairly recently talked with a birth father who was the unwitting victim of of this, where the um, the mother, the expectant woman, did not tell him, and it was devastating for him. He wanted to parent, um, and uh, or he would have parented very much so, and was against the adoption, and it was devastating. So honestly, it's the right thing to do. You don't want to take a child away from somebody who isn't a willing participant in making that decision. Um, and I don't think that's terribly common in the sense that I, I think, Deborah, you're probably right. Most instances that I've seen, the uh, birth fathers or the fathers at that point, because it's pre-birth, would, would be voluntarily doing it. But if not, it, it's just, it's not right. You're taking a child away from somebody. And uh, so for that reason as well. And I'd also say that for your child, this is the story your child is going to have. 
and uh, an unidentified birth father is 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 hard for children. Uh, not all children, but for some children, that's hard to that's a hard thing for them to to live with. And there's a lot of unanswered questions. Um, so for just for your child, it, it, in case your child wants to know their genetic history, their medical history, as Eric said, uh, even later in life. Uh, so that's another reason I think it's important to um, to push back on the unidentified if if possible. Um, all right. Well, with this one is not necessarily a scam, but uh, how common is it? for expectant moms to not be fully open about prenatal exposure to alcohol and drugs. Um, and I'd like to get both of your, your opinions on that, uh, and, then, uh, and then what can parents do about that. Eric, if you could start, just how often is that something that, is that a problem that you see very often? It can be early on uh, as the pregnancy progresses and they get closer to delivery they kind of know at that point that if you know if it's not just recreational use it's you know that's something they're addicted to that they're taking on a daily basis they know when they go to the hospital that the hospital is going to do a drug test and everybody's going to find out eventually and so we'll see and Deborah, correct me if i'm wrong but we'll, we'll usually see an uptick of oh yes i'm also doing this a little bit closer to birth and but i don't necessarily think it's trying to be deceitful as a lot of times it's just it's something they're just really not proud of that they don't want to share mm-hmm. or they're afraid that somebody won't uh choose them they will reject the match and they uh so well, that's another reason it's I also illegal <laughs> and so they're afraid they're going to get reported you know that we would turn them especially in. if they have other children mm-hmm. in the home yeah so no, they point. don't want to say i mean even if they wouldn't mind telling us they're still afraid that, you know, they might get arrested or we might call CPS on them, you know, Children's Protective Services, if they have other kids in the home. Um, as we're working with the mom, of course, we're going to the doctor with her and we're asking uh, for her to have a drug test. And so I do think the timing, you know, early on, you might have a few people that were fudging a little bit. But as you start going to doctor's appointments and you start asking for drug tests, that information comes out. And um, then it's important for adoptive parents to not just react without really doing some research first, you know, check it out and see, talk to someone who's really a specialist in um, substance abuse, as particularly for um, that particular substance and in prenatal situations and mm-hmm. see, you know, really what are the risk factors and should you unmatch or not, instead of just having a knee-jerk reaction, oh, she didn't tell us, she's lied to us about her drug use, we're done. Because that, you know, we we do need to be forgiving of people's weaknesses and, you know, some of this is not, if it's true addiction, she doesn't really have control over stopping as easily as you might readily think. And uh, it might still be a good adoption situation, um, but we need to do a little research before we just make a decision. And Creating a Family has a number of courses to do just that, help educate people on what are the both the short and the long-term impacts of alcohol as well as drugs and specific drugs, including opiates and methadone and other um, meth and other specific drugs, so that you can understand what are the true impacts, not what you imagine they are, and and then make a decision on if you're the right family for that child. 
And you bring up another interesting point with alcohol. It's very difficult to determine alcohol use during the pregnancy because it goes away so much quicker. It's easier to hide a can of empty can of beer. Um, you know, you drink it, and by the time the worker comes the next day, it doesn't you don't smell like you've been drinking beer. Um, the same thing at the doctor's office, unless you come in literally drunk. A doctor would never test you for alcohol, and the testing process is more difficult than testing for drugs, even though the alcohol might be worse for the baby in utero than the drugs might be. So um, sometimes adoption is just a walk in faith and that you're trusting that the other party is is doing is going to do what they say they're going to do and that you're going to do what you say you're going to do and alcohol kind of goes into that category the best thing you can do is have a really good relationship with your birth mom as you're working with her during the match um, and keep in close contact so you kind of know what she's doing day to day and if it's a stressful day or not and you know what are her recreational activities and things like that, that she'll feel a little more comfortable sharing with adoptive parents um, if she feels like she has a good relationship with them. And this kind of reinforces the point of it's good to have an adoption professional involved because adoptive parents don't want to be at a doctor's appointment and say, oh, yeah, we need to get a drug test for her, please. It's just, it's a hard thing to, it's a hard thing to do, but someone who does this day in and day out with birth parents or expectant parent, expectant mothers can, you know, they, they can say, oh, we also need to do this. And it just goes a little bit easier when there's some, when there's a third party there doing that. So it doesn't jeopardize your relationship. Yeah. Even if you find the birth mom on your own, you need to, it, it's, it's extremely helpful. Uh, and at some point you're going to have to be hiring a professional anyway to finalize the adoption. And it's extremely helpful to have another person running interference and doing some of the, as you say, the more awkward things. Yeah, great point. The Creating a Family show is underwritten by the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. Their mission is to strengthen adoptive families through post-adoption services, um, which, of course, is you know music to my ears. <laughs> and one of the ways they support adoptive families is through their free backpack program. This program provides newly adopted children with their own backpack personalized with their initials and filled with a adorable little bear and a sweet little blanket. And inside also is a tote bag with parenting resources for their parents. And this is free to both the agency as well as to the parents. Uh, so if you would like one, you need to talk to, and your agency is not already a backpack program member, talk to them and tell them to go to the jockeybeingfamily.com site, click on the word backpack, and then sign up, and uh, you too could get your own adorable backpack, bear, tote bag, and blanket. All right, so now we're talking about, this one is is truly, uh, as and, and Deborah, you pointed this out, this is not fraud. It is totally okay for an expectant mom to change her mind. Uh, and, and depending on when she places in the pregnancy, you know, maybe more likely than not. So what are some of the warning signs? Again, this is not fraud or, or an adoption scam, but I think it is something that a lot of parents wonder about. What are some of the warning signs that you see that an expectant woman or our expectant mom does not is is wavering in her decision to place or is is feeling uncomfortable with the whole adoption plan. Eric, you going to start us off on that one? 
really it's communication. Uh, the first one of the first signs is where they'll just drop off, drop off communication it is definitely one of the red flags. Um, and then this isn't always a red flag, but it, it can be from time to time is when expectant mothers don't want to see baby, don't want anything to do with baby. It they just want baby to be born and go to another room with a with adoptive parents. Now sometimes that's what birth mothers need, but sometimes it is a red flag because if to really be comfortable with their decision, I see a lot is they really have to love that child to then place that child. And a lot of times when they just have that disconnect there, it seems like they struggle a lot more later on and they have a lot tougher time grieving, which results in them coming back from time to time, trying to contest the adoption or termination of parental rights. Um, some other things that we'll see is just lying about little things. Um, you know, doctor, like we said, doctor's appointments is a good one. Um, changing cell phones and not giving the cell phone number, you know, the new cell phone number, thing, things like that. Deborah, what have some that you have seen? Well, I think those same ones are pretty common. And just having a mom who all of a sudden has lots of excuses for why she can't go to the doctor, lots of excuses for why she can't meet with her worker, why she can't talk to adoptive families on Sunday evenings anymore when they've been doing it for a couple of months, you know, that kind of thing. And just lots and lots of excuses. Um, but sometimes moms really don't know if they can sign until it gets right down to time of of signing. And so I've seen a few moms who've actually, you know, said to the adoptive parents, this is your baby. Um, I, I want them to have a life with you. I'm saying goodbye to the baby. But then before they get the relinquishment signed, one case in particular comes to mind where she had about 30 family members who found out she was in the hospital and they all showed up. And she really, in the last hour before it was time to sign her relinquishment document, came face to face with, are you going to be disowned by your entire extended family, or are you going to allow this child to go with one of your uncles who suddenly came forward? Um, mm -hmm. And that's what she chose to do. And I think it really, in that case, wasn't her choice necessarily. It wasn't what she wanted for that baby, but it was something she wound up feeling like she had to do. And so sometimes there are a lot of outside influences on a mom, especially in, in the hospital stay, you know, in that last few, um, those first few days after delivery that mom didn't anticipate, you know, having, mm -hmm. having come up and that may change her mind about placement. Um, and I think it's, it's normal for adoptive parents to want to think of that as a scam because they've lost money and they've mm -hmm. lost that chance and opportunity to raise that child themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's very painful and painful combined with our pocketbook has been hurt um, as well, makes it seem like a scam. And it's real common for adoptive parents to just instantly decide she's been scamming them since the get go. Everything she ever told them was a lie and um, that she just purposely was there to take their money when that really is not the case. You know, I also see that, uh, yeah, and I ag agree with you that often that usually that is not the case. Changing your mind is is a is a um, is a is, is not is not fraudulent. Um, I also see as a red flag when she has 
the expectant mom has not shared with her family about the adoption plans or if her mom, um, so the, uh, the birth grandmother, uh, is against the adoption. Do you see that as well, Eric? Is that also a warning sign that you've seen? I see a lot of expectant mothers that'll still go through with the plan, even though their their parents may not know. But to me, when they're, especially with younger expectant parents or um, in the case of an older child, if the biological, typically the biological grandparents don't know, that is usually the first place that the adoption is going to get contested. Um, I would say most of the contested adoptions we see, I'd say majority of them start when the biological grandparents find out about the adoption. So it, it may not, in my practice, I see it more that way, that it's a big red flag for the adoption becoming contested. Uh, but And I see it though, I see it both ways, yeah, about changing her mind because when she gives birth, the her mother finds out uh, and, uh, and either, and, and, and then she, honestly, she may figure that she, that she, the, the, the mom didn't realize that her, her mother would be there to be supportive. So all of a sudden now she has a support network that she didn't realize. So I mean, it can be things just as easy as that. I think one red flag is if she's not telling her doctor, because if the doctor doesn't know, and it's late in the pregnancy and she still hasn't told her doctor that she's placing. I think that really shows some ambivalence that she's not really sure she's going to go through with this. So she doesn't want the doctor to know about it. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I have not seen that one as much, but yeah, that makes good sense. Okay. All right. Any other um, adoption scams against adoptive parents that, that either of you can think about? I think we've really covered the basics of both the, the mom who is pregnant, um, but trying to match with multiple people as well as the one that's not pregnant at all for either financial gain or emotional reasons. That, those really, that really seems to capture the majority of scammers that are perpetrated on the part of the expectant parent. And I would throw in to trust your gut. You, there's not a lot of times there's not the one you know piece of paper emails you know record that you can point to and say oh she's definitely scamming me it all starts with that gut feeling of i need to look at this more so i would say you know trust your gut don't necessarily just be so fearful that you're going to upset somebody that you put you and your mm-hmm. family in a bad position. right and then also protect yourself financially um uh pregnant matching with uh a an expectant mom very early in the pregnancy uh, exposes you to more risk financially, depending on how your adoption agency does the uh, the uh, expectant parent expenses. I mean, some some agencies cover that, and some agencies expect parents to cover that, and some agencies do kind of a hybrid. But uh, if you match with somebody who is you know, 10 weeks pregnant, you've got a long pregnancy, so a, so a lot of expenses potentially. And a lot of time for uh, the mom to change her mind. So that's a way that you can protect yourself as an adoptive parent. Okay, so we've talked about how adoptive parents can be the victim of of fraud. But let's also, it's not just adoptive parents. Uh, Birth parents uh, can also, or unexpected parents, uh, can be 
the uh, the victims as well, and the perpetrators uh, would be the adoptive parents. Uh, Deborah, what what situation comes to mind where you see that adoptive parents are the ones who, whether or not it's actually a scam, that's probably not the right word, but certainly fraud are not being honest. Well, I think the obvious one is people that really um, know that they don't want openness, that they want as little contact with the pregnant mom as possible, but they realize that the landscape now is that birth moms really do want to have some kind of contact, and that's primarily the reason some people place for adoption as opposed to having an abortion, is so they can, you know, see the child grow up and know that the child is doing well. And so parents that will say, oh, yes, we'll be open, we'll come see you every year, we'll send you pictures and letters, and then cut off all contact the minute um, the Mm -hmm. adoption is finalized. But I think I've seen over the years adopted parents that want to misrepresent, uh, saying lie is a little bit harsh, but people who choose to misrepresent their own Um, maybe their own attendance at church and how frequently they're there because it's a birth mom who wants someone that's active in their church and maybe the couple's not, but they say they are anyway. Or maybe they misrepresent when the adoptive parents or mom plans to go back to work, Um, maybe saying, oh, sure, she'll be a stay-at-home mom if that's what you're looking for, and knowing that she's going to go right back to work, you know, a week or two after the baby's born. Um, At misrepresenting their health status, you know, not sharing if they have a diagnosis of cancer or something really serious, not saying that they need to know every, you know, that that an expectant mom would need to know everything about your entire health record, but any current diagnoses that you have that might be a more longer lasting illness, something like that. Um, or maybe we know of a job change, you know, adoptive dad has lost his job, but we're still representing that he's working because we don't want it to look bad that he doesn't mm-hmm. have a job right now, or that they know they're going to move away and mom really wants somebody that lives close or doesn't live close and they know that there's a move. So there's all kinds of things that adoptive parents can just misrepresent in an effort to, um, I want to match with you and I don't want to miss this opportunity for a baby, even though I'm really not what the expected mm-hmm. mom is wanting. Yeah. Eric, thoughts on that one? Sure. Some ways I'll see it is where adoptive parents will be working with multiple birth parents or expectant parents, kind of doubling down, hoping that one of them works out and maybe both of them work out and then they're not able to adopt both. And that's a very unfortunate situation. And that doesn't happen often. I think I've only seen it a, you know, once, twice, a handful of times. Um, the other thing to consider is with technology and 23andMe and Ancestry, at some point when your adopted child grows up, if they want to find their birth parents, it's not going to be very hard for them to do it, especially exactly. 18 years from now. And Adoptive parents need to realize that when your child contacts their birth parents, the birth parents may very well likely say that we had an agreement for your, you know, I wish I could have kept up with you. I didn't. They didn't send their pictures and letters and do what they were supposed to. And that, you know, that could be very traumatizing and have some pretty big negative effects on a family. So just to realize that just because you're, 
it, it's going to come back up or likely come back up at some point in the future. It's not something that you're that you might be able to hide. I am so glad you raised that. The idea that I mean, the reality is your child, if they choose and most and I, I suspect most will, we are moving into an area we're already there, but we're going to be we're, we're, we're marching very fast, even further into an area of both of, of easily finding out who your uh, birth parents are. And so ultimately, your birth, the, your child's uh, biological parents are going to be saying what you did. So you need to know that your child is going to find out. So that is certainly something to uh, to consider. And, and two thoughts. Uh, one went on the openness one. It, it seems like people will say, yes, yes, I'm agreeing with you, Deborah, that, that, that okay, so we we'll have to have to agree to openness. So yes, I agree to openness. But the minute it gets hard, and I guarantee it will get hard, something will come up. And the minute it gets hard, they back out and they say, no, you know, this is no longer something I'm willing to do. Um, and, and that's wrong too, because when you agree to openness, you got to agree to some of the messiness. You know, that's just, you know, it's, it's a different, that's another family member in a sense, and, and there will be trouble. Uh, and the other thing I see that uh, parents are not open about is if they are currently in fertility treatment or, or, or planning on going back into fertility treatment, um, or even um, uh, not all that long ago, uh, I heard about a situation where the the mom was pregnant, and uh, she wasn't sure whether to tell the birth mom because she was afraid the birth mom and the 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 um, the not the birth mom in this case it was the expectant mom because the, the placement had not taken place and she was afraid that the uh, mom would back out. So um, that's probably an extreme, but those are other things that people are sometimes not honest about. Okay. Um, anything else? I think we've pretty much covered all the things that uh, adoptive parents can do to be dishonest or fraudulent to expectant or birth parents. Uh, now, this this last one is uh, the one about talking about acts by adoption agencies or adoption attorneys that or people who are pretending to be um, that will harm either uh, adoptive parents or birth parents. So, uh, Eric, you you had uh, one that actually I had not heard about um, as a, as a possibility. And this is rec- this is new. Uh, I haven't seen this until this year, and it, and I've seen it a couple times in the surrogacy context and uh, once in the adoption context, where scammers will create fake uh, like fake adoption attorney or uh, fake adoption agency websites to where you go on it they'll even steal information from other attorneys or agencies websites to make it look legitimate and you know they'll lure you in eventually get you to make a payment and then they're gone and i don't i i've only seen it i've only seen it out there i think once or maybe twice for adoption um but and it was reported to the authorities when they when they found out about it, but they were, you know, being online, it was easy for them to just disappear. And one of the, one of the things to be leery of is whenever it seems like these people always ask for money orders. Um, and then they don't also, they don't have a lot of independent reviews outside those that they put on their website. 
So if, if they won't take a uh, credit card um, then or other forms of payment and they ask for a money order, that should be a red flag on sure. that one. Okay. Um, Deborah, do you have uh, ideas of how, uh, and, and again, I, I'm not going to use the word scam because I think that that's too limiting, but ways that uh, adoption agencies or adoption professionals, attorneys or whatever, are less than fully honest with either uh, adoptive parents or expectant parents? Well, I've seen um, adoption professionals that are not licensed in some states are still legal to operate that um, really push parents. You know, I have um, the perfect one for you and maybe there's five different criteria that she doesn't meet that are something that the adoptive parents really wanted, you know, or are pushing someone, pushing a birth mom onto an adoptive parent, um, even though they know she's using illegal drugs and the adoptive parents did not want that or um, that kind of thing, really, you know, pushing them to change what they initially came in requesting as the boundaries to kind of stay within on trying to match them. And, um, giving, you know, a lot of uh, nice fuzzy words along with it. Oh, she's just perfect for you. She just looks so beautiful. And I know her baby's going to be really pretty. And, uh, you know, those kinds of things to try to lure an adoptive parent into making um, a decision that would not be what they Mm -hmm. would normally make. Another one that I see is selling openness uh, to expectant parents. But then when they're talking with adoptive parents, uh, dismissing or, or, or diminishing the importance of openness, uh, telling them that the, telling the birth parents or the expectant parents that they would, they can ask for meetings, they can um, uh, you know, have letters, have FaceTime, things like this. But when they're talking with the adoptive parents, they say things like, you can just simply send, um, you know, once a year, send one picture, you know, at Christmas, and that's all that's going to be necessary and send it through us and don't share your name, don't share your address, don't share your, uh, your, your, uh, your uh, telephone number or anything like that. So, um, and a way around that is to look at um, the websites and see if what uh, agencies are saying to the, uh, on the, the, the tab that goes for birth uh, for adopt uh, for expectant parents is saying something uh, different than it's saying to the uh, uh, for the adoptive parents. So that's one um, one thing that I see that seems uh, dishonest. Um, from a money standpoint, Eric, uh, things that agencies uh, can do that that uh, um, uh, that uh, either are, are giving a, a, a false idea of how much usually a low idea of how much it's going to cost, uh, knowing full well that there's a lot of expenses that are going to, to also be incurred. So thoughts on that? And typically early on, very early on, is the agency will, it, when they match you, typically have a list of what you know birth mother's going to require as far as expenses. Now that may fluctuate or change a little bit, but typically we don't see, you know, giant shifts in that. So I would tell adoptive parents to try and get, you know, an idea from the agency of what expenses, you know, they're going to, they're going to be expected to pay Mm -hmm. early on. Mm -hmm. Right. And, 
and if uh, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Right. Uh, and that that would go for timing on how long how long it takes to have a match, as well as how much it's how much it's going to cost. Yeah. Are there any other things that you have seen that agencies that that adoptive parents should be or an expectant parents should be wary of uh, when choosing an agency? I've worked with several families that have worked with adoption marketing companies. Um, they are they are collecting your books and sharing them to adopted parents that hit their website and say they're looking. Sometimes they'll even put adopted parents on their website. Um, I, I've looked at some of those websites in particular. I know one of them compared how reasonable their prices were compared to an agency adoption. But the point they never made that's always true is once they match you, that mom will need to have an agency or an attorney in her state, and you will need an agency or an attorney in your state to help you with finalization at least and with the interstate compact um, paperwork and so forth. So um, you, in addition to paying the marketing company, you still have to pay somebody in her state and somebody in your state. So your adoption winds up being about three times as expensive as it might typically be. Um, at, but there, it's being pictured on their website as if this is a cheaper alternative to having an adoption agency. And I will say some adoption marketing companies do a good job. Yes. They'll, they'll, the adoptive parents will come to me and they'll know that you know, I'm expecting these expenses and that's generally what it is. And then there's the times where adoptive parents believe that they're using an adoption agency. They'll call the marketing company their agency. And then when they come to me and realize that, oh, we're going to need an attorney in Texas. We're going to need an attorney in Nebraska. It's going to cost thousands of dollars more they're not very happy at that point. Um, and sometimes they've spent most all their, you know, $30,000 on this marketing company to get matched, not knowing mm -hmm. that these expenses. Were yeah. So, so exactly. how can, what can adoptive parents do to protect themselves from that? Is to ask the question, ask them if, you know, if they're an adoption marketing company, if they're going to, if their job is to just make that match, or are they going to be with them through the entire process and two to talk to other families that have been through the process with that with that marketing company to to make sure or to make sure that it is what what they what they're mm -hmm. advertising that's one of the suggestions we make in our e-guide for how to choose an adoption agency or adoption attorney is to ask for specific references uh, in the last year um, whoever you're going to use and then and those are some of the questions to ask um, um, exactly. How long is it? Did it take? Uh, what was the amount you were quoted? It was it the same amount. Did you have to hire an attorney after the fact? That type of that type of information. So yeah, great advice. And I would I would say to read the material that you're given. I see a lot of people just don't. You know, you'll someone will say, well, it was in the material that I gave you that you signed off that you read. And, and usually this isn't what I'm talking is. What I'm talking about are you know things that explain the agencies or marketing companies' processes and things, and usually they're written in a pretty easy to read language. It's not like an attorney wrote it and made it hard uh, for most of the time. But it's to just read it's the attorney, that. right? I, I, I'm, I guess I can dog on our, on my profession, but um, yeah, <laughs> is to you know the, they're expecting you to read that material, 
And I would say, sit down and read through it and ask questions and just become more educated. And, and just becoming more educated will help prevent any confusion or potential scams, anything like that. Let me stop for a moment and thank two of our partners. Um, this show, as well as all the resources that we provide at Creating a Family, would not happen without the generous support of our partners. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing unbiased and accurate information to pre-adoptive and post-adoptive parents. One such partner is Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer home study only services as well as full service infant adoption, international adoption, and foster to adopt programs. We also have Spence Chapin. They're an adoption agency in New York City, and they are currently recruiting adopted adults in age 21 and older to serve as volunteer mentors for their adoption mentorship program. It is a great program. The mentors serve as role models to encourage the mentees, the adoptees, the younger adoptees, to ask questions, to explore their identities, and help them develop healthy self-esteem. And the interesting thing is that not only do the mentees uh, benefit, but the mentors find it rewarding and engaging, uh, as well as they they also learn and grow further in their adoption journey. So it's a great program. If you live in the New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut area, please contact spencechapin.org and uh, ask about their mentorship program. All right, so I think we have we have covered the waterfront, so to speak, of all sorts of adoption scams. And this is not to frighten you. This is to uh, empower you. Um, there are things you can do. There are warning signs, and 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 especially that when you're choosing an, a professional to work with you, um, it, ask these questions. Your professional is there to. They are experienced. They know what to look for. They have seen these red flags, um, and they they know the questions to ask. So much of this can be avoided by choosing an agency or an attorney uh, to work with you and walk alongside you to help you figure figure all this out. That's what they are there for. Thank you so much, Eric Freeby and Deborah Phillips, for being with us today to talk about adoption scams. I, I very much appreciate your, your presence. Uh, Eric, if people wanted to get more information uh, from you, can you tell them how they would reach you? Sure. The easiest way is to probably just go on our website. It's adoption bp.com adoption bp as in brownpruitt.com okay deborah how would people reach you if they would like more information about you or our cci again probably our website it's childrensconnections.org both children's and connections have s's on them okay all right the views expressed in this show are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partner, or our underwriters. And keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption professional. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week.